Yo, check us out. Chuck, the public enemy. Yo, what's up? This is DJ Yellow from the world's most dangerous group. What's up? This is DOC, the Diggy Diggy motherfucking doc. Yo, 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 what's up? This is your boy, Z-Murray. What up, y'all? This is E-Shot. This is Jerry Heller, motherfucker. This your boy, DJ Paul KOL from 360 Young Busy Ball. Vice World. This your man, Matt Mine the Hell Razor. Yo, this is DJ Ready Red. What up, what up, what up? This is the real Rick Ross, and you're listening to me on the Murder Master Music Show. Tupac and, and that time and no limit and the time with little Troy and 
and working with those artists and, and meeting some incredible people along the way. Folks are like, man, we want to hear the behind-the-scenes stories. So uh, right now I'm uh, working on a book and putting that together and, you know, and, and from there just working on different variety of projects of really supporting people and helping people. And that's really been what I've been working on, you know. And, and you know, I've got a few little other businesses I support and, 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 and assist with, but that's pretty much about it. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to uh, read your book. That's got to be uh, an amazing thing. Uh, DJ Yella uh, just put out a phenomenal book last year um, about his life. Uh, you know, uh, he said it was a, a hard thing to do. You know, uh, yeah. are you finding that true as well, or is it easy? Absolutely. I mean, the problem is there's so much. So here's the deal: when you when you when you're in the entertainment industry, you see so much and you do so much. And you're like, how much of that do you want to tell the world and open up and say, okay, here are the challenges I've had as a human being. Here's the hard work that I've, I've, I've done. And being able to pe- for people to, to kind of to witness who you are and what you do. And that's the difficulty. And then some of the stuff there are stories that, you know, people may, may or may not want out in the world. And you've got to figure out, do I tell all the story or do I just tell portions of the story? And it's just figuring, and at this point, it's just writing notes and, and being interviewed and, and taking all that information and put it together, like just one massive story. And, and certain people, there's so many people that affected my life, there's so many people that I've been in their lives. How, how deep do I go back? Do I go back growing up how I grew up, you know, being a military brat and living in Europe and all my friends there? Do I talk about my time playing sports? Do I talk about my my time, you know, running an independent label and, and, and running No Limits and, and, and putting, you know, that piece together? Do I talk about my own label with me and my entertainment and the success that I had with those projects? So just figuring out all the things that you want to say is kind of a difficult thing to do and getting your arms around it and, and, and having someone who normally writes help you tell that story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, um, man. You you you, know, you put out you know King George and stuff, and you put out yeah. um, you know Court Dog CCG, uh, yeah. you know Fam Bam Click, but also uh, man, you uh, you were very instrumental in the Little Troy project. Uh, Want to be a baller, man? Tell us about that whole relationship and how it came to be. Yeah, so you know I actually mean Green. Uh, the DJ was at KBXX, The Box, and then it wound up putting an album out on No Limit. I built a relationship with Mean Green because I was running No Limit and, and during my time there. So then when I when I uh, split from No Limit, it was kind of like, what what am I doing? What sort of projects am I going to do? At that point, I knew I was going to put a King George project together, and I was doing some marketing and promotion and working with Lil Troy because he had the Mass 27 project out. So Troy really had – he hadn't really sold more than a few, like five, 6,000 copies. Like he didn't have a big hit yet. And he was frustrated because he's like, man, I'm putting all my money and time and effort into these artists, and they're not really putting in the work. So I had said to him, I said, well, why don't you do your own album? Because since you're putting up your money, do your own album, own project, you own it. 
and I work with you, and we put this thing together, and we can blow something up. So we at that point we 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 kind of we kind of said okay this is what we're going to do, and it was like a three prong approach to putting the project together. Troy was going to work with Bruce Grimm Rhodes and do the production piece of it. Um, we worked with Stan Cobble SK for him to do the promotion part, the street promotion, and then on my side was about how do we get distribution. How do we push that distribution as far as we could go? How do we market to retail stores? How do we push to radio? But mainly, how do we focus on that retail aspect and making sure the, st- the stores had all those albums? So nowadays, people can just get downloads and do that all day. But back then, if you were going to move units, you had to have the relationships with the retail stores to bring those albums in, cassette to CD, vinyl, and making sure that you were selling those units. So once we decided we were going to work together, we just went to work. We went to work with putting the one sheets together and doing that piece and getting in front of people and and me kind of selling the record and knowing that it was going to be a big record. And then for him, making sure the sound was together and spending time with him, making sure we had something we knew was going to be a hit. And then obviously with Stan Cobble in the mix, Stan Cobble's a great street team guy. He also spent time with Two Live Crew and helped break some of those records, worked directly with, with Luke and, and Chris Wanwan, uh, Fresh Kid Ice, like worked with those guys directly. So he was taking a lot of that ideas he had from working those type of projects, those, those booty-shaking records, to like move that into what we were doing with Troy's project. And it just worked because Troy, Troy's got a work ethic, I've got a work ethic, Stan's got a work ethic, and we just utilize that kind of piece of what we did and the experience that I had selling No Limit Records and, and selling so many of those different projects, it just it kind of blew up. And I think the amazing thing about it is Troy appreciated that I was able to push that record into places that, you know, in the past some of his other projects didn't quite go. Yeah. Mass 187 didn't have that reach, um, and they no. were some real good projects, you know. Um, oh, man, the Mass 187 projects were incredible, but, the, the you know, at that point, you know, these guys were gangbangers, and, you know, when you know if you're not already kind of out there deep, if you're, you're a gangbanger and you're trying to come up, you are literally cutting off half of your complete audience, right? But if you are already known as a gangbanger and you already have a following and people know who you are, you're not cutting off because people are going to buy your record because they've got that respect for you and what you do. So their project was great, but also a piece of that is is cutting off like half of the half of the potential of your your customer that's going to buy your record or fan. But it's also making sure you're doing the right work on the right things to get yourself out there. And I don't know if they were actually doing that. And that was the that was the whole point. The one thing that I knew with Troy, Troy was going to get out there and get in front of people and, and promote his record because it was his record. It's different when you're promoting your own album compared to promoting someone else's album. Like I did a uh, I did a project uh, uh, sit you know sipping on lean right. So it was Big Tobe sipping on lean. I did that project and it was a, it was a chopped and screwed uh, record. And it was one of the things that made that record so successful is because it was mine. I was promoting, and I was like, this is me putting this chopped and screwed record together. And people loved it, and it, and it 
and it went. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> this little Troy was a very important project for you, I would imagine, too, because, you know, uh, you just uh, were at no limit. You were a huge factor in, in its success. Yeah. Um, it had to mean something special to you to, to come off of that and then get another hit record. It did. You know, Press, I'll be, you know, the whole deal was like, so if you think about my time in No Limit Records, so Master P had about 17 projects that he was putting out and didn't really have the huge success. Now, because I was able to work with him and, and I had ideas and he had ideas, and one thing, and I've said this in interviews before, there is nobody on the planet that will outwork Master P. There's not anyone on this planet that will outwork him. You can work as hard as him, but you're not going to outwork him because that guy will get up at 3 in the morning he will stay up till midnight. He will he will be tireless and relentless when it comes to doing projects. Now, the one thing that I would say after after when we connected, putting organization to what he do, what he did and putting strategy around work ethic and ideas, it just worked and our relationship worked because I was always focused on on doing something the impossible. And some of the ideas that I had people thought were crazy, but they worked out. So the foundation of owning your own masters, and, and Wendy Day uh, from the Rap Coalition has said this on interviews, the, the idea of o- artists owning their masters and getting distribution deals and owning a big piece of their record, like that foundation, that idea, that was was me, you know. And he, you know, he did great things with No Limit Records. It was kind of like on a rocket. It went high real quick, and then it, it came down. But the thing was important, his work ethic. So after we split, putting King George records together and putting those projects out, it was billboard chart after billboard chart after billboard chart. And so there was that success that I had with King George. And King for King George, if you look at the success of No Lemon and the success of me and mine, it was billboard chart after billboard chart. And he, he still hasn't had that same success he had at No Limit and working with me at me and mine. But then leave, then, then moving over to, okay, having billboard chart success and being, and people knowing who we are and being up for like a, like, like for a soul train awards is exciting. But then to your point, when you work with, Little Troy, and you've got somebody in the trenches that's working with you, it's the same type of relationship with Master P, someone who's going to work hard, who, who, who understands your ideas and may not 100% get it, but they say they have enough trust in you or trust in me at that moment to say, you know what, I'm going to work with this person and we're going to do something different. So in my time at No Limit Records, we created history at me and my entertainment, straight independent, creating history, and then working with Lil Troy and Shortstop Records and creating a, a whole other thing where a record that you know that's played to this day all over the world, it definitely felt made me feel good. It made me feel special that it showed that hey, with with Master P or King George or Lil Troy, I'm that foundation and I'm part of the success. And it just showed people that, you know, it wasn't just this one. I wasn't just 
along for the ride at No Limit. I wasn't just along for the ride with my, my label, me and my entertainment. I was the driving force. And then working with Lil Troy, it was the same thing, showing, like, the foundation and the success, and, and I was at the forefront of that. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's, uh, ironically, that's how I look at myself with the murder dog. I was there for so long yeah. that when I left, I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Like, how the murder yeah. dog's a street Bible. What can you do yeah. that can even come close to that? And, man, I've been so blessed to be able to interview people like yourself, people like Chuck D, DMC. Yeah. You know, so it's it's a good feeling to have that type of continued success. But, man, that ain't, that ain't even the half of it. I mean, you've been going yep. since and doing all kinds of different things, you know. Um, but your time at No Limit was obviously uh, a, a game changer. It set up, uh, yep. uh, I think, how the industry was going to be in a couple of years. You guys really shook it. But I want to ask you something. Yep. Um, I interviewed Rico, Sons of Funk, and he told me um, – I don't know if this went on when you were with P, your time with P, but he told me they did a massive concert. Uh, I forget where it was exactly, but afterwards they all went to the hotel, and there was these dudes in suits that wanted to talk to P. And security made everybody go in the room. I guess it was, they, they say it was somebody like Illuminati or some crazy shit like that, but um, they were obviously trying to uh, maybe get a piece of No Limit or a piece of the pie or whatever. Did you guys, when you were there, did you ever have any strange encounters with anybody or anybody try to, you know, uh, throw you guys off of your game? Well, I think there were there were folks that were trying to become – the bottom line is we had so much success completely independent that – Folks wanted it was good that they wanted us to move in a certain direction of of, of signing, right? So yeah. Master P had a moment where he was going to sign. He had all these deals on the table. We were talking to different folks, and he almost signed. The, the the one he was closest to signing was over with Craig Coleman at uh, Big Beat Atlanta, and part of that deal was. You know, and P would say, well, we're going to have to sign with somebody because, you know, the, the heat's on and people are coming at We're going to have to do a deal with somebody. So what happened, that when we got the contract, it, was, it wasn't real favorable. It was an artist contract. Now, dollars up front, advance money was, was nice. And I think the biggest thing that was for P, he wanted to fall on the sword and say, hey, I'm going to fall on the sword and sign this artist deal, but we're going to still keep No Limit going. And the way this contract read was like if he would have signed that deal, he couldn't even rap on a No Limit record without their permission. So they could say, hey, yeah, you can't rap on this record. Hey, you can't even do – like the conversation I had with P was like, well, if you sign this deal, you can't even rap on C's record. You You can't rap on Silk's record. You can't do it. You can't be a part of TRU. You can't do anything unless they say it's okay. So I was very influential. I say, no, we're not going to do this. I said, we're not signing this deal. We're going to hold out. Now, King George and C. Murder were frustrated with me because they, they literally wanted to kill me because they were like, man, there's, we're going to make this money. We're going to blow up. And, and at that point, we were already, you know, we were already well-known. We were already popular. So holding out for the right deal with priority was important. So I, 
there were conversations around, hey, we need to make a move, but you know, I never, I never saw anybody these these goons or anyone talk about Illuminati and and all that stuff. So, I mean, if Rico said it happened, uh, I'm sure it happened. I'm sure you know he's got no reason to lie. I don't think so. If Rico said it happened, I'm, I'm sure something along those lines happened with trying to do a deal and kind of controlling the direction, you know, he was going. Yeah, because you could, I mean, I I see what he's saying, and I've heard so many artists talk about it, like these secret yeah. parties or different things, um, and you see how artists are manipulated nowadays. Like uh, back yes. then it was important that you had your creative control because you knew what your fan base wanted. Now Absolutely. they want to manipulate you and dumb you down completely. But you guys, uh, you never had no problem with uh, uh, any anything like that. People trying to, you know, manipulate you into doing something you didn't want to do as far as the music, like make pop records or something like that. No, we were fully uh, so we were fully independent. Like we did exactly what we wanted, put the projects the way we wanted. the The main thing was. The concept of putting out 20-plus albums in a year happened to be about we wanted to have volume. We wanted to own the industry. We wanted to own the, 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 the charts, the billboard charts. And anyone who's been in this business, if you are on the billboard charts, even if you're at 200, retailers back then looked at where you were and said, what's this project, what's this album, we got to bring more units in. When they brought more units in, then you've got price and position, especially if you're giving discounts on, on, on product. And once you did that, more people went and bought your album because you had the right price and positioning. Then you'd move up the billboard charts, and then they would buy more albums. So if you just get on billboard charts even for a few weeks, you're talking about thousands and thousands of albums sold, especially independently. So if, you know if you're if you're assigned to a major label you're going you're at eight to twelve percent and you're usually advanced all this money. So what I would always tell folks, look, let's say for easy math, we're saying hey you're going to get you know ten percent of, of of a record. Let's say that let's say you're you're looking at eighty cents a record. We'll round up to a dollar record. Well, once they advanced you all this money, two hundred fifty. Let's say they advanced you three hundred thousand dollars, and you're getting a buck a record, and that's being very generous. You're looking at the video, and you're looking at promotional tour. You could be in the hole six hundred thousand dollars before you sold one album. So if you've got, if you're getting one dollar, usually you're probably getting sixty to eighty cents for an album. That's 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 probably around where you are. Now you could we're going to say a dollar for easy math, but if you've six hundred thousand dollars in the hole and you haven't paid your taxes because you're at that fifty to fifty five percent, you got to pay taxes on that money, and most of the artists don't. And the next thing you know, it you're six hundred thousand dollars in the hole before you sold one album. Well, think about that. In a buck a record, you need to sell 600,000 uh, records, albums, in order for you to break even. And you haven't paid your taxes. And not only that, you got to go gold, more than gold, in order for you just to break even. So that's why the major labels, like all these major labels and these artists who really wanted to be stars, they weren't making any money, 
and they were in a situation where they were kind of drowning. They're like, oh, my God, I got this 600000 I didn't pay this taxes. The IRS is coming after me because I don't have any money. I bought stuff. I probably spent the money instead of buying land and, and things that will appreciate. We're buying gold and, and renting apartments and spending money on cars that depreciate. And you're in a situation where you've got to go gold minimum just to, just to hopefully break even. Now, as an independent artist, you're making anywhere between six and eight bucks a unit. Let's say seven bucks a unit if you you own the label, and then you're probably about, depending on your deal, at least making three or four dollars a unit as an independent. So think about this: if you sold a hundred thousand copies and you were making four or five dollars a unit, you're making grossing a half a million dollars, right? Compared to, you know selling 600000 and you're not even breaking even or barely breaking even. So the yeah. reason why the independent game made sense is because you own your masters, you own your publishing, and you're able to make more, more dollars per unit sold, and you don't need to sell as many records. So you had guys who may, who may have 75,000, 80,000 albums in the marketplace they might sell, you sell, you know, six, 8,000 records, you're going to get on Billboard charts. You might be at 200, but you'll get on there for a week or two if you're selling six or 800, six or 8,000 copies a, a week. So if you're selling six or 8,000 copies a week, you're probably in the, uh, the bottom, you know, you're probably below 150 on the pop charts. And if you're doing that, still going to make, you know, you get 70,000 out there in the marketplace, you're still going to make dollars uh, $400,000 in revenue that's going in your pocket, minus the manufacturer, that kind of stuff, yeah. But you're still making two, $300,000, and you own your master's. So the independent game was big that way. So, but the folks who wanted to be stars, they would sign on the dotted line to anything, and they'd get a quarter million, two thirty, two fifty, and then they would be, they'd basically be stuck. That's why famous folks, famous artists like TLC went broke because they signed these deals and they were probably getting 6%, 5% on their album, and they had this advance money. They had to pay the label back. They had to pay the production company back, and that's how you sell millions of records. One of the biggest stars, biggest groups ever in the history of, of R&B, and you're still broke. You're broke at the end of the deal. Yeah, that's just, uh, it's crazy. You know, everybody Absolutely. needs uh, uh, what you would call a mastermind or, uh, uh, you know, the business mind uh, on their label. You know, I think if NWA had that, you know, there wouldn't have been so much friction and maybe they could have stayed together. Um, yes. Do you think you were underappreciated, though? Do you think you were um, not uh, respected uh, for, for what you contributed um, I, I think I would have to say I was underappreciated. You know, look, when people people try to – sometimes people believe their own, own hype, right? And they forget how the foundation was laid. You know, so you think about No Limit Records, you know, from the time the, – the, the start, 92 – like, you know, because in the eight, late 80s is when the label started. But for my time, 92, 93 – you know, going into 97, like that was the huge jump in No Limit Records, signing the distribution deal, um, you know, being all billboard charts, 
you know, putting out the Down South Hustlers, the idea behind the I'm About It movie, the, the Ice Cream Man, all of those projects were the foundation that propelled the label to, to hire, you know, the higher point, right? So you got the, the KLC and Moby Dick and, and, and doing the Down South Hustlers with UGK and, and, you know, 20 to Life and the Dayton family and 8-Ball and MJG, like all of those things laid the foundation doing the West Coast bad boys with rap and forte, you know, and the delinquents and, and SIBO and those guys. And all of those things laid the foundation of success, right? Setting our setting and credit up and making sure that's set up and, and, and put together, making sure that we are ordering the right equipment and doing the right price and positioning and getting pre-orders up and getting paid for those pre-orders. Like all of that stuff was the foundation of No Limit Records and with the support of someone like St. Charles. So when you when folks don't appreciate that whole piece and they like, okay, I'm going to go over here and do this, well, fine. But there's a reason why that the, the formula kind of went up like a rocket and came down so fast because once the foundation is gone, it's kind of like a house of cards, right? It just kind of crumbles. And, and then there's ideas around what, what should be done. So if you think about, like, No Limit, they had all of the opportunity to take that label to the, to, to the next label where, level where it's a major label and it's doing its own distribution and it's owning the rights. You know, they're already doing the movies and owning all of that. And then you think about that, the, the time it was like it came so fast and it went. So I would say, yeah, uh, underappreciated. I would say, yes, underappreciated. But the great thing about today, all of the folks that know all of the work that I put in and all the things that I did and had the success at No Limit and me and my entertainment and working with Shortstop Records and Lil Troy, like people are calling me and they're asking me, hey, can you help me with my project? And they're asking me, you know, they're saying, hey, man, all the things that you did that came to fruition is because of you. And even folks that, that were on the label that are still going on tour, those folks, you know, I talk to those folks and we have good conversations and, and there's appreciation for what I did. So in the moment, sometimes people don't realize what's, what's happening and it just takes some years of us being older, 20, 25 years later, saying, oh, man, I get it. I know what we're trying to do and what Tobin was trying to do. Like, I, I was trying to basically become universal. That was my goal. My goal is, like, how do we become universal? How do we get stock in these companies and we start buying into these companies and owning these companies? Not There's nothing wrong with owning a, a pager shop and all these other things, but if you're buying into these entertainment companies, you're buying into Sony, and you own these companies, that's when you can make decisions and you can change people's lives forever. And not just your family, but your friends and the people that you work with and the people that you can support, that's the game changer. So my ideas were around how do we buy Universal? How do we buy Sony? And sometimes when people think that big, they just they're dismissed as like crazy or not appreciated or like man you're a nut and you're out there and what i was trying to do was change history 
and we and, and I was part of creating history and changing history, but I was talking about owning all of these other companies like BMG to folks are so so we're controlling the content of what's coming out and not those other companies. Yeah, you you, you were basically trying to um you know, uh re reconfigure the game to where it would work in the favor of the artist. Yeah. You know, versus uh yeah, exactly, man. That, that's a dope vision. Um but you know, um I think uh, uh, all good things, unfortunately, come to the end, man, just like the Bulls, yep. they had to break up. You know, uh, what about That's today? The deal. Have, you, uh, have you Have you talked to P since the No Limit Chronicles? It's been a few years. No, we have not. We have not talked at all. Like, his, you know, I know he's busy selling chips and, and shoes and dips and waters and all that kind of stuff. So what he's doing is, you know, he's trying to, He's trying to figure out where he can go with his career and how he can have, you know, longevity and utilizing the 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 success that he's had over his career to kind of try to rekindle and do things a different way. So I have not had an opportunity to chat with him. So um, I know some I know folks have you know tried to connect us and we just haven't. But I've had the same phone number for about 25 years, so if he wanted to chat with me, he could he could easily pick up the phone and call me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we talked about it two years years ago um, before uh, you left. You tried to get King George to break your jaw, but King George didn't do it. It was almost like um, when Vern Gagne told the Iron Sheik, "Man, no, you're not going to lose to Hulk Hogan. I want you to break his leg and bring the belt back to AWA." But Sheik didn't yeah. do it. Um, yeah. It was almost like the same thing, man. Uh, how did it make you feel, though, when King George says, you know what, I'm not breaking Tobin Shaw? Well, I mean, you know, the reason why I had, you know, love and respect for, for King, and I think the reason why he didn't do it is because he knows I did everything to support No Limit and and put in every artist on there, and we were like a family, and it didn't make sense. That was the deal. So, I mean, I, I would like to, you know, I say I, I appreciate him for not wanting to get into a fight with me and not, you know, being, a, you know, wanted to be an aggressor towards me. I guess I can say I appreciate that, you know, obviously. But I think ultimately King wasn't interested in going back to prison for something that didn't make sense. And I think he just appreciated all the things that I did for, for him and P and all of the No Limit family, and it was like, man, that just doesn't make sense. So I think for whatever reason, P, P had a reason, and I don't think it had any – I think if even if King George would have attacked me or whatever, P would have found a reason not to want to work with King. He would have found a reason, I'm sure. And And I think that, you know, King George and I had some tremendous success at uh, you know me and my entertainment and and you know I I helped develop the whole concept of highness records and and put that together and build the business and and all that stuff and you know King had some significant success with his business so I guess to go back to your question I guess I appreciate any time anyone doesn't want to break my jaw or doesn't do it <laughs> or want to get into a fight so I can appreciate that very much. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, you guys went on to, to do a lot of successful things yourself. Um, you know, I remember those records, you know, Life of a Kingpin, and, you know, you had so many of them. Uh, now, yeah. is me and mine entertainment, are, are you going to drop anything? Uh, do you have anything in the works? Yeah, I'm working on a, uh, I'm working on an independent record. It's a dance record, an EDM record. Uh, it's called, uh, it's it's my record called Tattoos and Sodas. I'm working on it. It's almost done. And that's something that I'm doing just because I I grew up listening to hip hop, but also living in Germany, I listen to a lot of EDM. So I, I wanted to do something different, something fun, something that I can do some uh, to promote and really kind of blow up. I did a, I did a single last year that, you know, did pretty well, uh, did pretty well with the downloads called fantasy love. I wound up putting a, a flavor together called fantasy love, which is like a, a mixed berry lemon, uh, hard cider. That is one of my biggest sellers for psycho cider and the song and the, and the, the, the and we shot a, a, a music video in Belize. And putting that together along with the the, the beverage just had been kind of successful for us. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about Psycho Cider too, man. I'm glad to hear that that's going well. Um, now that this COVID stuff is finally easing up, you know, I, I imagine you're going to be doing some events, huh? Oh man, we're going to do a ton of events. We got another Psycho Fest coming up. Um, you know, as, as as we get through the summer, this is when things really pick up and we can do some amazing things. So uh, putting more cans out, putting new flavors out, um, we're really just focused on that piece. Like, it's interesting because we were doing so well, and then COVID came and things slowed up, and we were doing cans, and we were doing pretty well in Northern California. But the goal is to expand to other states. The goal is to make sure that we – you know, we continue to do a high-level product that continues to win, uh, win honors as we as we go in these different festivals. And really, I think the the important part of it is my goal is to look at potentially buying of other beverage companies and figuring out what makes sense. There was a way for me to buy larger companies and put my money up to buy other cider companies or other beverage companies. That's basically what I've been looking to do. And uh, you probably will hear about some things over the next 12 to 18 months about, you know, cycle cider purchasing or, or trying to make a purchase of other companies. Man, that's huge. Congratulations on that. You're the guy that plays Monopoly. You immediately go after Boardwalk and Park Place. <laughs> I already know it. Yeah, <laughs> if you're going to do it, you, either, you, you win big or lose big. The goal is to win big and, and really – yeah. You know, I think the whole the whole piece is, look, you get the quality of product first. And once you have the quality of product, then you go after all the customers and get them to get excited about who you are. And that's how you build the brand. It's like the quality of it. I, I know some folks just want to put out anything and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell this. But the key is really the quality of the product. Because the bottom line is you can trick people into buying anything once maybe even twice, but they're not going to buy it a third time if it doesn't taste good, sound good, smell good, look good, whatever, whatever product you have. So the key is having a good product that people enjoy, and it's a, it's a concept and a mindset that people feel that they are part of a movement. And, and as long as people feel that they're part of a movement 
and they like what you do and they enjoy what you do and they like the visual and they like the way it tastes or they like the way it looks if it was close, that's the key to the stepping stone or being the foundation of success. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You get people on your team that way that, uh, like you said, a sense of belonging. You know, they feel like they're a part of something big. And, uh, you know, Psycho Cider, I think, is – is huge, but I can't wait to see what else you do within the, uh, you know, the the industry. Let's go to a break, uh, Tobin. Then I'm gonna bring on the homie Sin. I know he's got a couple questions for you. We're gonna play uh, here. This while I want to be a baller, little Troy. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, this is the one that really kicked it off. Uh, we'll be right back. Don't go nowhere. That's, that's all, price I need to know So <laughs> 
it's going to be big. And my goal was to push it to over a million copies straight independent through Southwest Wholesale Selected Hits. And because Troy had his situation, he made a decision to to sign a deal with with the Republic underneath the Universal. And uh, it worked out for him, and, and it was a good situation for him and good situation for me. I think if we would have kept it independent, we probably – we probably could have sold over a million copies independently. Yeah, because that, yeah, the record was just infectious. Um, before I turn you over to Sin, um, you know, mutual friend of ours is doing quite well with his podcast, The Home Court Dog, yeah. Big Court. Um, has he uh, uh, talked about getting you on the podcast? I think that would be an interesting episode. Well, no, he hasn't. And, you know, I got love for Court, you know, uh, uh, I put Court on the Down South Hustlers, um, did work with him and Cisco and, and putting out CCG with King George. And, you know, I've, I got nothing but love for Court, and we, uh, we, we, we are good. I've even, you know, connected him to some folks who want to connect with them and, and do some licensing on some, uh, some vinyl for CCG and stuff. But he has not reached out. And I know he, you know, uh, he's got a wonderful relationship with, with Master P., and I'm sure if if Court put me on the show, it would put him in a precarious situation with P. And I'm not saying he wouldn't. I'm just saying that, you know, he probably, if he did, it would probably be later down the line if if he decided to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just would love to see the two of you chop it up because you guys got that history that goes back. Yeah. You remember when he was the skinny uh, uh, court dog before he became the, uh, the uh, big court, uh, yeah. much calmed down, you know, big court, you know. But, yeah, uh, absolutely, man. And I, I remember, you know, spending time in Kansas City with him and Cisco and going around everywhere. And, you know, and those, one thing about court, hardworking guy, um, really charismatic. A lot of people know him. Um, no one ever says a bad word about him because he keeps it good with everybody. Um, so, and that, the one thing about my relationship with Court has always been good uh, because he's just he's just a straight shooter. And if at any time he he had anything on his mind, he'd share it, and and, and the same vice versa. But we never had any any issues. He's he's a good dude. He works hard. And uh, I'm glad to see his podcast taking off. It's doing well for him. Yeah, me too. I'm real proud of the guy. Uh, I remember uh, reviewing his uh, solo albums, and, you know, they were hard. They were, uh, uh, you know, they they could have competed with anything that was out at the time. And uh, it's good to see him, uh, because he played in the back, you know, for a while, for uh, much of his career, you know, uh, besides when he was putting out the records. You know, he played behind the scenes, and now to see him, um, I just saw Jigsaw over at All Hip Hop do a, a story on him. Yep. It's dope to see that, you know, because he's been putting in work for years. Um, let's bring on the homie Sin. I know he's got a few questions for you. Uh, okay. Sin, you there, brother? Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, hi, Scott. Hi, uh, brother Tavin. Yeah. Hey, what's uh, up, Sin? How you doing, man? Good to see you. Yeah, very fun, very fun. So, yeah, can you tell us about the the first roster and uh, the underrated rappers of, of the winner to Chabos at the first time I made about Kerry G 
about Gangster T, Mick Mann, mm-hmm. Daniel Fry from the Marcus Bank. So earlier. What's so, so what do you, so you mean about how they made up TRU or like I mean look those guys were really impactful to No Limit Records. They were guys who always watched, you know, P's back and made sure and Silk's back and made sure that, you know, in in California, No Limit Records and anyone affiliated with No, no, no Limit Records was supported. I think the, the, you know, from a talent perspective, there was definitely talent there, and I definitely there were some projects that were put together. And at that point during that time, No Limit Records and P didn't necessarily know what direction the sound should go, right? And I think the the thing that kind of, you know, helped with what, what they did and, and how they helped with, with putting the, the – the sound together is finding who could take the production level to the next level. Like even Ken Franklin K. Lou was a legendary producer during the course of time, he got better and better and better to the, to the legendary producer he is now and didn't have that foundation. And the, the artist that are the producer that took like those artists and took the music and no limit to the next level was, you know, EA Ski. Like, Ski literally, when he came on board and supported P with production and supported All in the Limit with production, that's when we became, like, from, a, oh, we're a local kind of trying to make it to breaking on the West Coast and wake, breaking on to a national level because the quality of tracks he was doing. And then you bring in someone like Al Eaton who came in and brought that high level, you know, doing the production for two shorts and doing that piece kind of even broaden the perspective. So you got K. Lou, E.A. Ski, Al Eaton putting together, and then also let's not forget Larry D., who was over with Solar Music Group, putting these projects together and putting the, the foundation. So that so that when you look at that original group of folks that were on the roster at No Limit, man, those guys were raw. They were talented. They were willing to work hard, but from a, a level of respect, they always supported, you know, no limit records and, and watched watched the teams back or watched the, watched everyone's back. Yeah, yeah. Talking about Kalu, uh, P and Kalu have done since 1988, in fact, right? By the yeah. Day. So, I mean, you know. P and P and K Lou always had a good good relationship. I know during my time, you know, with No Limit, that K Lou was very influential on a lot of projects. Like he he would record a lot. There are a lot of projects, not just for No Limit, but for other labels. He didn't get credit for. So sometimes he would actually produce things, but not get production credit, but would be back and play like every every instrument live to help artists out. So when I think about K. Lou and who he is as a producer and who he, who he is as a human being, he was always looking out for other folks. And his relationship with P definitely worked out well because then when it was time to put out some, some albums, he was willing to work with K. Lou. P was willing to work with K. Lou to put projects out. 
And it's it's incredible that K. Lou is still doing projects. He's doing movies and music scores, and and he's producing projects and still doing uh, uh, music and movies to this day. Yeah, yeah. And talk about about K. Lou, the production of Man of the Psychopath. It was him uh, and the featuring Big O, Chili D, and Sonia C. In 1990, can you tell us about this one, Model of Psychopath? Yeah, so when you think about, you know, the mind of a psychopath and how raw that project was. And I think, look, the record was, the record was solid, but it, but if you think about it, it was so raw and so, it was so raw, it was like a sound that,
a record that was being played on commercial radio and being put in the mix. And spending time with those guys in South Central and hanging out and, you know, because most of the time in California spent for me was in the Bay Area and then transitioning down south, Mississippi, Alabama, parts of Texas, Louisiana, and, and being able to be with those guys on the West Coast and put together that project was special because if you listen to it, the sound, uh, you know, Gangsta Waves was a hit record. Way Too Real was a hit record. So many people love that, love that record because it's a real West Coast gritty, gritty uh, record that sounds incredible and that, like I said, was played in the mix so often. Yeah. And did you know when was the first time you, you met Master P? And uh, also, did you knew his, his brother, his left brother, Kevin Miller, before he died? I did. I did not know Kevin. Uh, I did not know Kevin. Uh, P and I connected in 1992, uh, 91, 92. And, you know, I was instantly, when, when he and I connected and met, I was instantly, you know, like, this is my guy. Like, he, like I, he was my friend. He was my brother. So when we connected, it's like our relationship was great. And, you know, it's unfortunate, you know, so many years have passed since we've, you know, since we've even spoken. But one thing I will say, during my time with Pete at No Limit was some of the most fun times I ever had, some of the craziest times I've ever had. And there's so many things that that go on or went on during that time that people wouldn't even believe, you know, and it's it's. It's interesting that the more years pass, when when people ask me stories about No Limit Records and the things we did and, and the incredible things of putting projects together in, in, in two or three weeks and, and going on tour with folks like Tupac and and doing shows, you know, and being around folks like Too Short and all that stuff, it, like it was just a definitely an interesting and a fun time. Uh, I did not know Kevin. I know, you know, P was real close to, to Kevin. Uh, I know C was close and Silk, they were all close. You know, so anytime a family member dies, it, it, it's just pretty tough. And I know that kind of, that's, I think that really drove P to to want to, to take his family out of that environment and to make sure that this record side of the business worked. And that's one thing. I've said this before, and I've said this even earlier today. Look, you're not gonna you're not gonna outwork Master P, and I think the drive has to be for him, as he always wants to make sure that he is pushing as hard as possible. And I think losing his brother was probably part of that, is that he didn't want to uh, he did not want to lose any time, or take it or, or, or waste time. He wanted to make sure he took advantage of every situation he could. Well, you mentioned Tupac, and he had something in common with P. He didn't want to waste time either. Uh, when I interviewed Shock G years ago, he said that Pac wanted to get that Tupacalypse Now record done as soon as possible because he thought he was going to die. You know, he didn't want to waste any time. He, yep. he must have seen his fair share of death, you know, and knew it was around the corner, literally. Now, speaking of Pac, um, 
you said that uh, you know P uh, toured with him. What was that like? You know, what was it like meeting Pac? And what was it like uh, seeing you know P and Pac? You know, interact. Did, did they click? Did they hit it off? Yeah, I mean, they did. They were like, look, they had a pretty good relationship. I think ultimately, being around Pac, Pac was like, there were so many different sides to him, right? There was, like, this crazy, wild, fun, want-to-have-a-good-time guy, and then there was kind of the the, the kind of self-reflective, quiet, and you just didn't know which, which Pac you were going to get, right? You just didn't know. And I think some days, like, you know, one thing about, you know, just from my experience and being on the road and doing some shows, it's his highs were very high and then his lows were very low. And I think that, you know, P is a driven guy. Pac was a driven guy. There was that mutual respect of the the two of them. And I think that was really important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. They might have, uh, uh, you know, maybe eventually done something together, you know. Uh, yeah, I think so, because there was a time when, you know, when Pac was putting projects together, he was working with, with Forty and Sibo, and, and he was just working with different artists that, and whoever was hot at the time, he wanted to do something with them and put something together. So I think if, if had, you know, Pac lived, I think that more than likely they would have, you know, did some stuff together. I think the, you know, the last time P probably saw Pac alive, I know the last time I saw Pac alive was that Two Shorts retirement party when he did album number 10. Since then he's done, you know, so many more albums. But when he did album number 10 and he had a retirement party, Pac was there, P was there, I know, I was there. And so, I mean, that, you know, Tupac was a special guy, very talented, very hardworking. And to Shock G's point, he definitely wanted to make sure that he pushed as hard as he could to do as many projects as possible, many songs as possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. What was that too short farewell party like? Man, it was really crazy. The, the crazy thing about it, Pac actually got into a fight at that party and then left. And then so... That was the the one thing that was so unfortunate. It was like he got into a got into an altercation there, but prior to that, and then it, it kind of got back going. But prior to that, that party was off the hook. So many people were there. I can't even remember. I mean, anyone who was any anyone and everyone was at that party. It was pretty amazing. Um, like you know, people performed. Like it was just a really incredible show. It was down in Los Angeles. And it was uh, it was just pretty it was pretty incredible to be around those folks and to to get love and show love and everybody was cool with everyone and it was it was pretty incredible to be at that be at that event man. Yeah, I, I could imagine, man. Uh, but just, so the last time you see Pac though, he he got into a fight and left. Was it with uh, uh, another rapper or, or just some random yeah, person? Yeah, you know, party? it was an altercation with somebody at the party. I don't, I don't think it was anyone famous. I think somebody probably said something or did something, and it wasn't a fist fight, but it was kind of a pushing and shoving altercation. And then then he wound up kind of taking off, and then that's the last time I saw him. I didn't even, like, I saw him, he said, what's up? I said, what's up to him? And then, I don't know, maybe an hour later, there was an altercation and kind of saw some pushing and shoving and then kind of went over, and then it was like, 
he, you know, people broke it up. He wound up rolling out, and that was the last time I remember seeing him. Where, where were you when, uh, you know, you found out that he passed? I was actually in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, because I was about to, uh, uh, I was about to throw a party with uh, Jamal Anderson, and I heard he got shot, and I was like. I was, you know, it's kind of like, well, man, he always gets shot kind of thing because he's always so tough and that you didn't think it was going to be, like, serious. And then he wound up dying, and then it was like, wow, I can't believe it. And, you know, you know, like, look, if you're in this entertainment business, there are so many people that have died over the course of time, right? If you think about like I think about people I've done projects with or people that have been on an album that I've either produced or promoted or marketed or or who come out on my label, so many people have died. And senseless death, it's like you think about it every time. It's always shocking. It's always sad. And it's always like, man. And there's so many talented people in the music business, and they get killed because people sometimes don't value life. And... It saddens me when I think about how people don't value life. Like you, like like life is life is fast enough as it is. Death is going to come to all of us, and there's no reason why we want to rush it or need to rush it. So when I think about you know Pac dying, and I think about you know other people that I've known like Fat Pat dying or Hawk dying, Sporty T dying. Um, you know, Mr. C from RBL Posse, like when I think about those guys dying, you just think about how young and impressionable and hardworking and dedicated to their craft, good people who have good families, and they just die because other folks don't value life. And I just wish that just in hip-hop in general, just in, in the world in general, but hip, specifically in hip-hop, we valued life more. And before we decide to take someone's life, we really understand um, how that impacts that person's family, how that impacts the, 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 the life of other folks who may be fans of those people. Yeah, 100% agree with you, Tobin. Uh, plus, you, you know what they could have accomplished over the years, too. So that's... Yes. Uh, Definitely tragic. Tobin, I want to thank you so much, man. It's always an honor to have you on. Like I said at the beginning of the show, we got to have you on at least once a year, the very least. Um, if you can, uh, just give everybody your info, uh, shout-outs, man. I want to give you the floor, brother. It's all yours. Hey, man, I just want to thank you guys because what you do is incredible. I mean, you have some of the largest, most influential people on your show, and for me to be a part of that that discussion and be a part of as a guest is important, and and, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, I gotta just say thank you to to everyone who reaches out to me. Uh, folks, reach out to me on Instagram at Tobin Costin. Uh, you can hit me there. You can also hit me at Cycle Beverages, uh, and, and and you can also hit me on my website at TobinCostin.com. So, so many people reach out to me and, and ask for support and guidance, and, and I try to do my best to help folks in any way possible. But I got to thank everybody who's always showing me love. And, you know, my former folks that I work with at No Limit, uh, nothing but love for little Troy, 
King George, like, uh, you know, Manuel Ortiz, who, who was, uh, you know, worked, uh, worked well with the folks at No Limit and specifically Sea Murders manager. He like like good folks like that. You know, it's just it's just good. You know, people like Cassie D, Octavius Miller. Got to say what's up to those folks. Uh, Mr. Servon, Mia X, KLC, uh, Moby Dick, all of those folks. I just I just got to say thank you to those folks because each one of them has affected my lo- my life in a, in a positive way. Um, I can't can't say anything or enough about uh, uh, folks like Violet Brown. Uh, got so much love for her in the game and support. Um, what's up to my girl Wendy Day and, and Stan Cobble? And um, that's pretty much it, man. Psycho Cider, man. Check us out. It's insanely good. X A I K O, pronounced Psycho. And uh, man, if you if you're in the Bay Area, um, check it out. And if you need anything, if I could support any of the listeners in any way, I uh, I am always available, man. Man, that's what's up, Tobin. Thank you, brother. You and yours be safe, man. All right. You too, man. Take care, man. It's a crazy time going on in the world, but I think things will get better. Just stay focused, work hard, uh, be dedicated to your craft, and as long as you do that, let your yeses be yes and your noes be no, and everything else will take care of itself, man. You guys have a safe one. Uh, that's great words to uh, end it up by. Uh, you too, Tobin. Peace, brother. Peace out.